This is Left to Burn with John Foster and Josh White, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. Josh, I read the other day that they're opening a completely automated McDonald's down in Texas somewhere. Do they have automated McDonald's in the UK yet? Not yet. We still have the self-service machines, but there are people present in these places even still. Just to be clear, it's not like I'm eating at McDonald's, but it's an interesting thing for the following reason. It raises a kind of question of the labor market, right? So McDonald's, especially as in recent years, there have been moves to try and unionize McDonald's restaurants, McDonald's fast food joints. They've been threatening, oh, you know, we're going to get rid of workers entirely. We're going to automate the thing. I was discussing this with a friend of mine and her perspective was, well, people need these kind of jobs, so this sucks. And I thought to myself, well, okay, the, there's a point to that, certainly. But the fact of the matter is, these are bullshit jobs in the in the David Graeber sense, right? I mean, these are jobs that nobody really wants to have in any other sense than the only thing worse than being exploited in the labor market is not being exploited in the labor market. And so I think it raises a kind of an interesting question for the left about how we approach questions of automation and, and what sort of changes they might bring for, for how the labor market works and what it is that we're trying to achieve on the left generally. Quite. The, the left has traditionally sought, sought to resist automation, to defend uh, these kinds of jobs precisely because those workers can be unionized and can become a part of a kind of left constituency, at least in theory, that's the case. And historically, that has worked out to some degree with the rise of the labor movement in the 19th and 20th century. But of course, in recent decades, things have receded. And with the muck jobs, let's say, <laughs> or the bullshit jobs, there's a difficult question here, because on the one hand, these jobs are kind of a stepping stone for many people low-skilled workers and so on, who are on their way to doing other things. And they also haven't been unionized, or at least not by and large. For, for the left, in the way it thinks about these things, it's not necessarily the case that keeping around McDonald's jobs will mean that those people then become a part of trade unions, and then we have a new base against a multinational company. I had a debate with a person I know about McJobs. Her position was that, well, you know, maybe some people like these jobs because they like to cook. And I'm like, because they like to cook? That's like, that's like I got a ditch digger job because I want to be a structural engineer and it scratches the same itch or whatever. Like, it's just, that's not, that's not really, you know. But this is the point about jobs like this. They're repetitive and they're easily automatable. I mean, I'm a little surprised they haven't done it before now and why they haven't done it is another issue that we might discuss. But there are a lot of studies out now that suggest that large proportions of jobs being done by human beings right now don't need to be done by human beings. And this isn't just repetitive assembly line jobs, most of which or a lot of which have been killed off by automation in any case. I mean, when Nick Cernak and Alex Williams wrote Inventing the Future in 2016, I think was when that came out, they quoted a figure of something like 1.6 million industrial robots. There's probably a lot more now. I mean, there's a guy I, I talk to occasionally, a guy I went to college with, who basically installs these sorts of things. And his motto, he tells the people he, he works for, his motto is, don't arbitrate, automate, which sounds kind of grim. But in a way, you know, I mean, it gets into a whole bunch of things. There's a bunch of topics that could be treated here. One is the whole sort of work ethic. The CEO of Home Depot got out on some 
broadcast the other day was talking about how people don't want to work anymore. And this is a common refrain you hear from business people these days. And clearly what it means if you translate it is they don't want to work for the pittance that we want to pay them to keep capital accumulating at an appropriate rate. So clearly that's, that's one thing. But also there's a kind of a, a process of blackmail that goes on where employers say, well, you know, if you make such and such a demand, we'll automate. It's the sort of next phase of offshoring, right? Instead of sending it to some low wage area, we'll just bring in robots. But that itself brings up a number of problems. There's a story about Walter Ruther, the head of the AFL-CIO, in a, walking around a newly automated factory with Henry Ford III, I think is supposed to be. The story is probably apocryphal, but it, it makes a good point, which is Henry Ford says to Walter Ruther, well, how are you going to get the robots to join your union? And Walter Ruther says, your problem is, how are you going to get the robots to buy your cars? You know, that illustrates another problem, one that Marx sort of alluded to in the third volume of Capital about the composition of capital and the larger proportion of capital that goes to stuff that isn't human beings and thus can't have the intensity of exploitation ramped up in the same way. That contributes to the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. The law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. People often miss that about Marx. Yeah, we won't get lost in, in, into that controversy and debate. Right, yeah. If people want to talk to me about the third volume of Capital, I'm willing to do it off, off camera if they really you know, value their life minutes so meanly as that. But the thing I kind of want to kick off from is there's a video, and I sent you this earlier. We were talking about it a little bit before, about that's, that's a sort of panel discussion, and it's chaired by Aaron Bastani, who's a very bright guy, and it has David Harvey, and it had uh, Paul Mason. I think this was around the time that Post Capital was published before he was driven insane by the Corbin controversy, about which the less said, the better. But at one point, they're talking about automation, and Aaron Bastani says, well, you know, the, the left doesn't want to be about bullshit jobs forever. And I think that was a very insightful comment, because if we're in the position of going to workers and saying, well, what we really, you know, we're going to expend a lot of energy defending your right to get reamed doing a meaningless, soul-destroying job, that just contributes to the feeling, I think, among a lot of people that the left doesn't have a vision that people actually want. And that, I think, is a big problem. That's something that, that I hope to, you know, we can talk about more over the course of the coming year when we're trying to talk a little bit more about the positive way forward for the left. I think it's definitely the case that the left has struggled to have a kind of, well, struggled to articulate a vision that kind of mobilizes and inspires people, especially in the last, you know, I suppose, the last 20 to 30 years, really, particularly in the post-Cold War era of the 90s and 2000s. In the last several years, there has been a rise of left, so-called left populism, and we've seen various experiments with that and near victories in the case of Labour in 2017 and moments where it seemed like there was a shift, you know, uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign, maybe, Podemos. These are the kind of movements that come to mind. But when it comes to technology, the question of automation, it's often framed in terms of, I think, just the productive forces as opposed to social relations. And very often it's there's like a formulaic approach of this is the thing we need to combine with it. So like basic income is a classic example where most people go with this. It probably is an approximation of a kind of positive vision, 
that we need to kind of mobilize people as opposed to just saying, yeah, we're going to we're going to defend your right to be exploited by McDonald's. <laughs> right. Once again, it's a difficult situation because of the power relations that surround the labor relations, so to speak. I mean, there's an argument made that capitalism is, is about power rather than money per se. Right. So one of the things going on here is that it's important to keep people working because one of the things that kind of keeps people docile is a fear of losing your job, because in the United States anyway, that also generally means losing your health care. That's less the case in Europe generally. But B, it just makes you docile because you're spending a third of your time or more in the workplace, and then you're spending another third sleeping, which you're really, in a lot of respects, doing for the boss as much as for yourself. And one of the interesting lessons I think that, that can be taken from the whole COVID time was that when you have a lot of people who don't have to spend that 47, 50, 55 hours a week at their job or like going to coming from their job, who also have access to shelter and food, at least to some degree, those people then find other things to do, like agitate about how shitty their condition is, right? Like agitate about the conditions of their lives, as opposed to just having all their creative energy taken up by doing these jobs. And that it's a worrisome thing from the perspective of owners of capital, right? Because what you want is for people to be internalizing the Protestant work ethic, which is widely disseminated. And, and what you have is this idea of the value of work in and of itself. So there's this idea that there's a kind of nobility to, to working in and of itself, which when you're looking at flipping burgers or turning the same screw 5,000 times in a day, a little bit of a hard sell. So, I mean, clearly there's some kinds of work that are soul enhancing, care work, especially a lot of it. Some of it is not. But this is what I think is kind of interesting about the Cernick and Williams book. Maybe at some point we'll devote a whole episode to that because there's an awful lot in it. But they do get to a couple of things, points that it's worth making just to frame the discussion. One is what they call folk politics, the traditional politics of the left, which doesn't really seem to be getting anywhere, especially in the last 30 years, which tends to be performative, which doesn't really change the systemic imperatives. So that say you win this thing here, you win rent relief for some group of people, or you stop some company from destroying the environment in this other place. Because you're not changing the systemic characteristics, what you're doing is putting them off for a while until people aren't looking and then they start doing what they're doing again. And their idea is, it's been associated with what's called accelerationism. They, not surprisingly, because in 2013, they put out a, a paper that was called the Accelerationist Manifesto. Accelerationism has a whole bunch of varieties. We can't get into the sort of full spectrum of that, although I think we should. Accelerationism is an idea which is taken a lot of different ways. So there's a kind of right accelerationism. A lot depends on what it is that you think you're accelerating and what you think you're accelerating it toward. So for Cernick and Williams, the idea is we're accelerating capitalist technological development. And the assumption is that we're going to get to a kind of fully automated luxury communism. Universal basic income is a big part of what they talk about in inventing the future, the more extensive treatment of the topic. There's been a kind of right accelerationism, too, which thinks that we're accelerating toward a race war or the singularity or whatever it is. I mean, that's a whole can of worms, which, which we won't probably delve into right now for everybody's sake. But I think that there is an interesting argument there. Instead of let's engage in this feudal opposition to capitalist development, why don't we just embrace it in a certain sense? because it has the power as a kernel within it to create kinds of change that we actually want to see and that can be more lasting and more systemic. 
Yeah, and their version of accelerationism, I think, is also a kind of left social democratic version of it, at the very least. Like, it's the idea that you can combine a kind of left politics in present conditions with the present kind of development of technology under capitalism, and therefore take things forward on those grounds. So supporting left populism or left social democracy under capitalism is a, is a way of accelerating the system generally towards a kind of economic transition, let's say. That's much more controversial for the left, I think. And it's also, it's funny looking back on all of this now, like five, six years on after, after this manifesto and inventing the future came out, and we've seen so much since then, in terms of left populism hitting the buffers, as it were, not least the Corbyn project in the UK. There's a couple of really attractive things. And I mean, okay, so accelerationism, in a certain sense, is a little bit of a dead horse. It was discussed a lot, especially in the pre-COVID period. It was critiqued pretty thoroughly. Another thing I want to talk about in a, in a future episode is, is the work of Benjamin Noyes, who didn't quite coin the term accelerationism, but gave it a lot of its current savor in a book called The Persistence of the Negative. And then he wrote another book called Malign Velocities, which was a critique of Cernick and Williams. But there's a couple of things that I find interesting, and, and once again, we can get into a deeper discussion of it, maybe a later point. But one of the ideas that they have is that with the increase of automation, you know, assuming it continues apace, and there's another interesting fact here, which is that Hubert Dreyfus, philosopher Hubert Dreyfus, who taught for a long time at Berkeley, was in the worked at MIT in the 60s, early 70s, where they were doing a lot of AI research, government-funded AI research. And he just thought this was a pile. And he talked in one of his lectures about how they had this idea that they were just going to fill a computer with a brute quantity of facts. I think the first, the first take on it was a million facts. And that if you filled it up with this many facts, then it would function in some sense like a human brain. And the problem was, Dreyfus pointed out, that it missed a lot of fairly basic things, like it just didn't understand how gravity worked, or more interestingly, it didn't know that if Richard Nixon was in Washington, D.C., his left foot was there too. Clearly, AI has come a long way since then. But, you know, so there are some questions that AI researchers raise about the degree to which this is really, is it a threat to jobs in the way that people say it is? But let's assume for a minute that AI can take over a lot of really bullshit jobs. What you have then is a situation with a lot of with a lot of surplus population. This is something that Cernick and Williams talk a lot about. And what happens to those people? Their idea is this creates pressure for UBI. We end up with a situation where people can live more creative lives. If they want to work certain kinds of jobs, they can. Remuneration for those jobs is more about what a pain in the ass it is to do them than how much profit they generate. And people can do sort of care-related jobs, but they can spend a lot of time just doing whatever it is they want to do. I mean, their proposal is people work three-day weeks. This is, I think, Keynes actually mooted this idea back in the period between the First and Second World War. I look at this and I think another thing that might happen is, I mean, there's, this, there's been this debate which has been percolating through the New Left Review and some other periodicals about neo-feudalism. And I think to myself... Another idea, another outcome of this, if the left doesn't organize itself properly, is that people get locked into debt peonage, where they get locked into a different kind of capital reproduction or whatever. So they don't really talk quite so much about this in Inventing the Future, but I think it's by no means clear that increasing automation and the, the elimination of, of a certain kind of bullshit job or a certain proportion of bullshit jobs, then automatically results in better conditions for human beings generally. Yeah, that's where it gets iffy. If you automate away 
X number of jobs across the economy, it doesn't necessarily follow that then you'll get UBI as a, a preordained development, let's say, of capitalism, <laughs> or that capitalism will automatically switch over itself and become socialism. Probably the best of them don't think that, but I, I still think it's difficult to see where the, the politics of this really fit in. They have an analysis of the, the economic situation and points about technological development, but they don't really have a, a politics, I think, at this point. You know, just saying left populism or left social democracies six years ago, that might have been plausible. I don't think it really is anymore. And as for universal basic income, I mean, I'm a kind of critical supporter of the idea. You know, it depends on the details. I think it could be a good thing. It could also be a terrible thing, depending on how it's executed. And universal basic income, it, it's in the category of kind of wishful thinking and magic bullets, let's say, you know. The people who are advocating a basic income often talk as if it's something that can kind of unlock the system or eliminate a whole series of problems. And typically this is well-meaning, but wrong-headed. Well, I mean, not to be an optimist, and clearly you're right in certain respects. Well, you're probably right in a lot of respects, but clearly you're right in at least the respect that universal basic income, if it does come about, has to be done in a certain way, right? So it doesn't want to be just sort of an excuse for the boss to pay you less. It doesn't want to be the Spienham land system that Carl Polanyi talked about, the Great Transformation. Cernick and Williams are a little fuzzy about how we get from where we are now to UBI at some later point. And that's an issue. I mean, it's not, you don't want to be one of these people like Karl Kautsky who thinks that the revolution is just going to break out, not to defame poor Karl Kautsky, but you don't want to be in the position of just assuming that there's a historical process that's just going to naturally result in better condition for humans. If that was going to happen, it already would have, I think. Once again, not to be overly optimistic, but one point they make, and I think that this is a really interesting one in terms of things that the left wants, right? So one of the things that gets talked a lot about in the left these days is the patriarchal family and what are we going to do? How do we change the, uh, the family structure so it's not essentially an institution predicated on the oppression of women? One thing, so if we get, you know, imagine we get to a situation of three days a week or UBI or whatever, I think that creates an opening for a reconfiguration of the family in such a way that it's not based on the male breadwinner or some sort of hangover of the kind of male breadwinner idea. Now, once again, does that automatically happen? No, obviously not. And also, this is not to say getting rid of capitalism will fix all our other problems. So you feminists, relax, let's get rid of capitalism and then the patriarchy will go away. That clearly, clearly, that's not what we're saying here. But if we can get to some sort of situation where the work process is organized differently and where the intensity of exploitation is decreased somewhat, then it puts us in a better position to say, well, how do we want to organize ourselves socially so that 51% of the population isn't marginalized in the way that the patriarchal family has tended to do over hundreds and hundreds of years? In that respect, I can see why, you know, a lot of people read Inventing the Future and thought, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. Clearly, there's some critical response that needs to be added onto it. But it also has some tantalizingly interesting suggestions. It's, it's really my position on that. And we can get more deeply into the ins and outs of it if we, you know, if we do an episode just on that. But it, and, and this may be that I'll shut up, is <laughs> I think it's interesting because from my perspective, one of the big problems for the left is, and they point this out too, we don't really have a coherent idea of what it is we want to accomplish in the way that the right does. 
And you can say, well, you know, we don't want to reify this or that. We don't want to suppress this and that in favor of some other idea. The, the fact of the matter is, if we don't fight the right in a way that's going to win, it's futile. So we have to come up with some kind of thing that can oppose the way they approach things in a way that's going to actually, that has some chance of winning. Just going back to basic income, the reason why I count myself as a kind of critical supporter of the idea is precisely that you could kind of reduce the dependency on the wage system in, in the first place, right? And that fits with what you're saying about cha changing the family structure as well as a result. So I think every every Marxist should kind of see those potentials as positives. You know, every kind of radical leftist should think, you know, we want people to be less dependent on, on wage labor, period, right? It's just about the details and how it's executed. But how we get get to a place where we have even those kinds of political options on the table from where we are, that's that's a difficult one. And I think uh, Cernek and Williams, they talk about kind of laying the basis for a kind of uh, hegemonic left project in terms of setting up new kinds of organisations. I think they also talk about why doesn't the left found more think tanks. Here in Britain, we've had quite a few of those now, uh, thankfully. And in some cases, we've seen older think tanks, including IPPR, take a left turn and become more kind of progressive and more interesting than they have been in the past, because it used to be a Blairite institute, IPPR. But I, I seriously doubt think tanks will be the means of shifting the system. But they are kind of very useful for kind of disseminating ideas and advocating policy. Right. I mean, the idea that they repeatedly stress, I think, is that what we need to do is A, have a clear idea of where we want to go, but B, turn that into common sense in the way that the, the Mont Pelerin Society had a big role in. You can argue exactly how big that role was, but the Mont Pelerin Society played this role in making neoliberalism the baseline idea of how capitalism should operate. And clearly this is an idea that needs to be worked out into the context of what sort of activism, what sort of what sort of struggle, or, or what have you, gets us moving in that direction? But the I, you know the thing that I think that's most interesting is let's try and have a clear idea of where we want to go, and not just expend a lot of energy engaging in actions that don't really address the broader systemic question. Because if we do, I mean, if we spend time fighting those things, which is a legitimate thing to do, generally speaking, right? But if, if we don't change the systemic characteristics, then essentially we end up refighting the same battles and it's harder for us to be convincing to to exploited people, to marginalized people, that we're really moving in a direction that they want to move that's not just, here's some shiny new commodities, which is the selling point of the other side of the aisle. What immediately comes to mind in this discussion is the kind of incipient union militancy we're seeing in the UK right now. There's a kind of rising tide of uh, militancy, which is historically not huge, but it is significant given recent decades of kind of UK labour relations. Trade unions in Britain have been pretty weak since Thatcher. And, you know, we have some of the worst union legislation in Europe. And it's a great thing to see the railway workers striking. Um, we've, we've had postal workers striking. We've had even nurses striking. But certain in the case of, say, with the railways, that those jobs could be automated. 
the RMT is understandably opposed to any kind of automation. And I think it's correct that the left should oppose that right now because the RMT is a militant union and is particularly strong. Sure. You know, but we don't want them to be in the position that the print workers at the Sun were in 1986 when Rupert Murdoch was just like, we're automating. Sorry, you know, you're out of a job. There's no fight back from that. That's just game over. I was at the riots that happened after that. You know, I got tear gassed just to make the point that it wasn't happening. And so, and well, you know, my position, and I think this is really your position too, don't let me speak for you, is that we do need to have a broader conception so that we're not just fighting battles, so that we're fighting battles that we're going to win, or that we have some chance of winning, right? And, and I mean, I, I agree, I don't want the rail workers to get shafted, but by the same token, I also want to get us to a position where we win. Yeah, and I guess we have to kind of have two, two forts in mind at once, really, in a way, putting it simply, and that we're favouring the position of the union and the workers right now under present conditions. We might also have a, a political conception of technology which is radical compared to the status quo, you know, because technology, the way I see it, technology is kind of neutral in the sense that it can be used for all kinds of things. And automation of the railways could be an emancipatory project where those workers are reskilled. You know, they they have guaranteed income. They have security. They go on to do more fulfilling things. They go on to lead better lives. But that's not very likely under the present conditions. Yeah, that that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, that's probably all we have time for for this time around. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more chat about. This topic, I suspect, will have some more stuff to say, and I'm expecting that by then we'll have a coherent winning strategy for the left. So tune in in a couple of weeks for that. Thank you. This was Left to Burn.